Welcome everybody to Stazzy and the Verb. You know, I got a fever and the prescription is more Pac-Man. <laughs> That's right, it's Pac-Man, his packness, El Pacarino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. <laughs> hey, hey, Nick, I got a joke for you. Listen, Andrew, leave the jokes to me, okay? Hey, this is a good one. I wrote this, all right? I'm very proud of this joke. This is the stupidest joke I've ever written. All right, go. <laughs> what did Fozzie the Bear say to Pac-Man? What could it be? No guesses? No, it's, none. It's such a hard joke to guess the answer to. <laughs> Waka waka! Ah, there it is. Welcome to the Stazzy and the Verb Show, episode one, The Phantom's Menace. I'm your host, Andrew Napier. And I'm your host, Nick Scola. He's Stazzy. And he's the Verb. We'll be bringing you topics scattered throughout all of nerddom, diving into the stories behind the things we all know and love. And as you may have guessed by now, we're talking about Pac-Man on this episode. The arcade game that made more money than goddamn motherfucking Star Wars. Pew pew! Yeah! Well, within one year, more than 100,000 arcade units had been sold, which grossed more than $1 billion in quarters. Pac-Man overtook Asteroids as the best-selling arcade game in the country and surpassed Star Wars, the OG, A New Hope, by more than $200 million. That's right, Nick. Uh, A New Hope made $775.5 million in the box office, uh, pretty far from the billion dollars that that Pac-Man made. Oh, yeah. And then, surprisingly, I didn't know this, but uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, it was completely like diminishing returns for the first three movies. (laughs) You you get uh, A New Hope coming in at 775, and then we have Empire coming in at like 548, and um, Return of the Jedi coming in at less than 500 million, which like for... Star Wars? I'm just really surprised by that. But uh, ironically, The Phantom Menace, The Phantom's Menace, became the first one of the series to overpass Pac-Man in money spent by Americans, coming in at $1.027 billion in the box office. And I honestly, I don't know why these comparisons keep coming up. Nick, you can you can speak to this. We've we've looked on like every site about Pac-Man, every research. It always says it made more money than Star Wars. Yeah, like, yeah. It was like a go-to. Like that was yeah. their big comparison. <laughs> and it's just really <laughs> weird because like you, you might say it's comparing like uh, apples and oranges, but I guess like if you really force it, it's it's two kinds of entertainment. You know what I mean? Yep. So here on Plug and Nug Radio, we like to force things. So, <laughs> <laughs> right so, on, dude. <laughs> so I went ahead and did some math. <laughs> Um, Listen to the numbers for a second Uh, Let's go with a movie ticket from the 80s The closest year I can get was 85 It said uh, without the popcorn and soda The price of a movie ticket was about 3.55 Game of Pac-Man, 25 cents Movie lasts about 2 hours Game of Pac-Man Say 5 minutes And that's being generous by the way Because I fucking suck at Pac-Man And I'm out of there in like 2 and a half minutes You're okay I'm getting better But like I I, You're way better than me (laughs) You'll get there (laughs) Fair enough but uh, all right, so let's put this let's put this uh, this math to work here. Okay, so with all those numbers in place, I can prove to you mathematically that watching a Star Wars movie is more bang for your buck than playing Pac-Man. So you wanted to play Pac-Man for as long as you would watch a movie, you'd play roughly 24 times. It's 120 minutes of Pac-Man. Uh, divide that into five minute chunks, 24 times. Uh, you'd spend about six dollars doing that. That's enough for your movie ticket and the popcorn and soda. Uh, or to look at it another another way, divide the amount of time you spent in the movie in Pac-Man rounded size chunks. Again, it's just 120 by 5, 24. 
and then divide that by the money that you spent on the ticket, 355, and you end up with less than 15 cents per five minute chunk. So you spend more than a dime to play less Pac-Man over the movie. It's but Andrew, what's that have anything to do with Pac-Man? <laughs> Why does that matter to us right now? Because Nick, it was more wasteful and people did it anyway. Because they wanted to spend the money on Pac-Man because it was so addicting to get that little bit longer out of every round. And plus the obvious, no one's going to go watch Empire Strikes Back 24 well, times. All right. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> you, you could. I, I, I would. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and I'm sure like 10 other people probably did as well. But that's besides the point. You could easily play 24 rounds of Pac-Man in one day at the arcade and still want to go back the next day and play it some more. Like it's, it's addicting. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and that's why Pac-Man remains the top-selling arcade cabinet of all time. Which at this point is very unlikely to ever be overcome. In addition to normal cabinets we all know and love, they also had a two-player cocktail table style cabinet, which is the one that my dad owned and which is the one I grew up playing. So basically what it is, it's a small table, uh, double-sided. You put a little bench on like a little stool on each side. Why um, is there poop involved? Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you start playing uh, the screen uh, faces player one after you die the screen will flip and it'll uh, face player two but now you guys are facing each other like head on so you can talk like the utmost shit to each other while you're playing it's the best uh table to play on yeah it's really intense i love uh that table i love going over your house and playing on it because it's just like literally you always kick my ass <laughs> at least in the first round i feel like i'm somehow able to like step up my game in the second round i'm like damn you're that's a piece funny of shit. i always feel like my first round's the worst one and then really? i get better after that yeah it's i mean like i guess my that's warm. what everyone yeah, thinks yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right i must have been like 10 or 11 when my dad got the pac-man table um every time we'd play he'd kick my ass like every single time so i'd have to like rocky like me and you. yeah yeah so i took it out on other people exactly i'm so afraid to play your dad well, yeah like rocky montage myself and like train and put the music on and just keep playing over and over again learn how to like hide in a corner get the all the ghosts to come to you because uh that's the way my dad would play they're um Back when he was a kid in the 80s, they really utilized their high score because they were actually playing for money, their quarters, whereas like we got to play the machine that was rigged up for free. Yeah, exactly, which is the best way to do it, but still <laughs> <laughs> didn't have that option. Back then. Uh, but I, I just got to say I'm super jealous of your early experiences with Pac-Man, uh, especially with that cabinet. That cabinet is so much fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Uh, personally, my first experience with Pac-Man, the, the whole series, I guess, is uh, playing the best sequel ever, Miz. Very important that it's Miz, not Miss. We'll get into that never. <laughs> um, uh, Miz Pac-Man, specifically the Sega Genesis port. Great game. I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yep, the I Sega Genesis with, yep, version has all sorts of different like features than the original. Oh, the like, boost. The boost yeah, alone yeah. that you could put on and just hell of fun. Um but I honestly don't remember too much of the original gameplay. Like I need to pick it back up to to get into it a little more. I barely I, remember that boost thing. I have like, I remember it. being so a thing, you, but I haven't you, used it. If you ever want to play it, I have it. So we can just like jam out some time. We have to. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, it came out two years before I was born. So it's probably safe to say it's the first video game I ever played. <laughs> Um, and I do distinctly remember playing the game with my grandmother who like absolutely loved the game. And, uh, to me, that's just the mark of a really successful game, getting someone who's not into gaming at all to play it. And I'd argue that like 
no game has done so well since. Uh, considering one of Go- Toro Iwatani's goals, the uh, creator of Pac-Man, going into video games was to make a game that could appeal to women uh, as well as men, I think he'd be proud to know that my grandmother, a woman who rarely played Pac- played Pac-Man, <laughs> she played Pac-Man all the time. <laughs> <laughs> rarely played video games. Exactly. Yeah. She rarely I, played video games, and now. she was a, a fan of the game. So Iwatani, he saw a bunch of horny teenagers in the arcades. There were no girls around, and he sought to capitalize on it. Any guy in the 1980s who's ever said, uh, I may be scrawny, but check out my totally, totally tubular high score, babe, has Iwatani to thank for that. Because so many people said that. Yeah, all, all the time. <laughs> That's what my imagination of an 80s person sounds like. I that, don't know why they're all from California, but I, they are. Okay? I feel like your dad said that, and then like, a girl was like, okay. Okay, and then walked away. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? He looked around the arcade and he thought to himself, where are the girls? Why are there no girls here? And there should be girls here. Yeah. And the, the obvious answer to your question, Nick, is that all the guys were nerds. I mean, why would there be any girls there to begin with? Hey, my dad was the captain of the hockey team. <laughs> I feel like he was a secret nerd. He was a closet nerd. <laughs> yeah, he was a closet nerd. He loved his Star Trek, though. The less obvious answer that Iwatani capitalized on uh, was the fact that all the games in the market at the time were about space, war, and mainly geared towards adult men. Everything I love. Exactly. <laughs> um, and everything we're probably going to be talking about on yeah. this show. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he clearly, he wisely saw women as a uh, <clears throat> untapped market in video games. I'll, uh, I'll let you guys decide if that was a pun. Uh, but especially in Japan, when Iwatani was a young kid, like you, you could accurately describe an arcade at that point as a uh, a kurabuto fest. Oh, I love this word. Say it again. Kurabuto. Kurabuto. <laughs> I looked that up just for this joke. Kurabuto <laughs> is a uh, apparently a type of Japanese sausage. <laughs> That's a fun fact. Use that fact at parties. It's exactly. gonna get you all the girls or boys. But Maybe basically what I'm saying here is Iwatani wanted to create a game that would appeal to the whole family. Men, women, kids, grandparents, just everyone. <laughs> All right. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's take it back. Might you say way, way back? You might. Because we're jumping into the way, way back machine. The way, way back machine. Are you sure it's safe, Nick? A hundred percent. Of course it is. But we found it in the garbage. Why would someone throw out a perfectly good way, way back machine? Those things are expensive. Well, you know me. I'm a roll the dice kind of guy anyways. But what about that note we found on it? You know the one. It said, don't ever use, thrown out on purpose, sincerely, Jake Young and Holden McNeely. Nah, that that note looked uh, sus as fuck, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to do it. Oh, oh, I hit the button. Fuck, man. What did you just do? Where the fuck even are we? Ah, ah, ah. The question is, when are we? The year is 1955. Messiah Nakamura, who some refer to as the father of Pac-Man, but we here at the Stasi and the Verb show like to think of him more as the grandfather of Pac-Man. He is a young Japanese businessman at this time, and he is about to start the journey that made Namco and subsequently Pac-Man a household name worldwide. Meanwhile, that same year, little tiny baby Turo Iwatani, the future father of Pac-Man, was just born on Tuesday, January 25th, 
1955. That's right, ladies. At the ripe age of 65, he's still single. He's an Aquarius. He likes walks on pixelated beaches. And he was born the year of the goat because he is one. But let's jump back to Nakamura for a second. His father... (laughs) Sorry, I didn't laugh at your joke. (laughs) I did. (laughs) You did laugh at your own joke. Thanks, Robin Williams. Um, <laughs> did you know that the thing that people hated Robert Williams stand up because he laughed too much at his own jokes? That's amazing that you have to, you have to think yourself as funny, right? Before other people can. <laughs> That's what he would say, literally. <laughs> uh, but if you watch one of his stand-up specials; it's like half him laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but back to Nakamura for a second. His father owned a shotgun repair business, but the post World War II economy in Japan wouldn't support the business any further. However, his father was able to find some success making cork pop guns. That's not even a joke. Cork pop guns, like the little ones you get as a kid, like at oh at, yeah, yeah, at fairs and shit. And it's a little fun cork as fuck when you looks like, like a shotgun. Five. It goes like. <laughs> I wish um, that was the real noise it made. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Nakamura expanded on this idea, starting his own business, making corn-operated amusements. His first uh, investment into the business was two coin-op rocking horses, like you might see outside of a grocery store, and he bought it with the equivalent of only 1200 U.S. dollars. Starting with these two horses, Nakamura made his business into a driving force in the Japanese coin-op market. The, their first big contract with a department store would see a roadway race coin-op train ride at every one of their stores. And an even bigger deal, which really established their power in the market, is with Disney, who allowed them to make rides using their character likenesses for all the children of Japan to enjoy. Jumping a little further ahead, they would start getting into coin-operated games as well, not just simple amusements that literally rock back and forth. Um... <laughs> But real, interactive, super impressive, all analog games. Uh, they had an Ultraman-themed gun game. Fucking love Ultraman. <laughs> and that one used uh, light to track your shots. And like, I want to play this game now. Now I'm going to hear about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pick one up and put it in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they also had uh, pinball machines. That they started. That was their first branch into pinball machines. And they were uh, branded with characters from Osamatsu-kun. Which is a popular, was a popular comedy manga at the time, and uh, I, I took a look at it just for shits and giggles, and it it literally looks like the Peanuts but anime. That that that's a really good <laughs> description because it's so <laughs> it's weird. Pretty looking. spot on. It yeah. does. It, <laughs> another thing I would get into, uh, but okay. By 1976, just before our hero Toru Iwatani jumps into the scene, they come out with this really cool racing game called F1. The game was fully mechanical, though the player sat and looked at a screen turning a wheel, just like the racing games we all know in arcades. Uh, But it was entirely mechanical, which is just so interesting. Like, you really have to see Yeah, no electronics into it. We're going to post a video to the Facebook page, so definitely check it out. But to give a brief description, uh, behind a clear glass screen was a physical piece of plastic that looked like the front of your car, and it was attached to the steering wheel so that it would move when you moved the steering wheel. And then behind that was a spinning track with a background. It had two matchbox-like cars at different intervals moving around it. So it would use light and mirrors to make it look like you were driving around a track. And it was the same track. It would just repeat itself. And there were only two cars on it. But it would look like repetitive infinite cars. You know what I mean? Um, and then like when you hit one of the cars, it would trigger this explosion sequence. And Which really looks flashing. cool. Yeah, yeah. It is it's pretty a, yeah, it's it's a, cool. It's fun to watch. From For 1976, it's amazingly impressive uh please check out the video on youtube uh 
on we're gonna post it on the Facebook page. All right. Yeah. Words. In, in 1977, <laughs> Nakamura Manufacturing Company, as it was formerly named, acquired the rights to the Japanese division of Atari Inc. from Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, who would later rip off sequels of Pac-Man in America because this whole story is really, really long and insane. But we'll get into that in another episode. Yeah, we're probably going to do a couple parts of this Pac-Man's really long. We did not know what we were getting into with yeah, this. But we're like not going to do in them now. in a row. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to do them in a row, though, so no, don't yeah, worry no, about it. No, we need it, to space it out. We need a break <laughs> we from need a, Pac-Man. We've, we've been doing this one episode for, what, like a year now? Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, we're, we're starting to get serious now, and we're getting this down on tape. and or Tape, I said it again. All right, all right, where were we? Finally, we get to Turo Iwatani, the protagonist in our story. The year is 1977, and he finally joins newly reorganized Namco Limited at the young age of 22. Nick, can you read a quote from Iwatani's interview uh, in the 1986 book Programmers at Work by Susan Lammers about joining Namco? Okay, um, straight from the goat's mouth. I entered this company, Namco, in 1977. I hadn't yet established my own personal vision of what I would do here. My contribution to the company just happened to take form of video games. Quick shout out to Susan Lammers. She worked at Microsoft in the 80s and wrote and edited the book that we'll be taking most of our quotes from today, uh, Programmers at Work. It's a series of interviews with different programmers from that era, and it's available free online. Uh, so definitely check it out. It's an uh, interesting read. What's the funniest thing about uh, Iwatani being in that book is it's uh, he himself stated in this next quote, it's important for you to understand I am not a programmer. I developed the specs and designed the features, but other people who worked with me wrote the program. So to give you guys a general idea, Iwatani to Pac-Man was what Stan Lee was to Marvel. Basically, they came up with the idea and someone else had to take it and run with it. Uh, Pac-Man was created by a team of programmers over a series of just a few months using Iwatani's framework. Let's take one more quote here from a different source. The, uh, the 2019 book uh, Vintage Games 2.0 by Matt Barton. Masaya Nakamura speaking on Iwatani's lack of training. Uh, for game designers, the knowledge they acquired in school is not so helpful. I want people who think in unusual ways, whose curiosity runs away with them, fun-loving renegades. This brings us to Namco and Iwatani's first jump into actually making video games. It all starts with GB in 1978. You can see the beginnings of what would go on to be Pac-Man, all the way from back then. It was one of the earliest instances of color ever used in a video game, even though it wasn't real color, uh, or real color graphics, it wasn't digital color. Um, and you can see from the cabinet they were really shooting for like a mascot-like appeal. Iwatani had his goals in mind very clearly from this game. He wanted a marketable, colorful, appealing to all game with a mascot who they could get more and more games out of for years to come. But GB didn't quite hit the mark. They'd get there eventually, though. It was a breakout-style game, even though they ironically just got the rights to sell the popular Atari cabinet in Japan. It, that part just makes no sense. They literally just got the rights to sell Breakout, 
and now they're making a ripoff of Breakout. Yep. <laughs> okay. Go for but, it. <laughs> uh, but influenced more so by pinball, the bricks were around the outside, around the outside, around the outside, <laughs> instead of just on top, and there were two floating <laughs> paddles as well as <laughs> in in the corners that would return your ball and big buzzer looking things for extra points. Hitting the buzzers would light up the word Namco. The analog color graphics were achieved by layering colored cellophane on the parts of the glass that they wanted to be colored. Uh, this also resulted in the ball changing colors when it entered those zones. It looks really weird and kind of cheap, but it's interesting for the time. There wasn't really many uh, uh, machines that had any color, so it was kind of a, a bold choice to make. Iwatani's next creation was the game Bombi, a sequel to GB. You see, the maximum number of players is two, and the two players have to alternate, just like that cocktail table I was talking about with Pac-Man earlier. Bombi and GB were practically identical. It was like a more polished version of GB than a sequel. You know what they say, polish a turd, still a turd. <laughs> But uh, this meant that they got rid of the cellophane and had real digital color graphics, uh, so the ball wouldn't change color. Plus, they went with brighter colors as opposed to the cool blue and purple color palette of GB, which, by the way, completely clashed with the entire mascot idea on the side of the cabinet, which is red and white. I, so many stupid questions to ask. Iwatani, I guess. Like, why the fuck did you do that? <laughs> he had no um, idea what he was doing. I guess, yeah. He's literally just <laughs> playing around. Fun-loving renegades. Um, according to Matt Barton, author of the book Vintage Games 2.0, the game did not sell well and likely sold the same amount of machines as GB. Uh, the success of Namco's later release, Galaxian, a revolutionary shooting game and prequel to Galaga, is believed to have contributed to the failure, where Galaxian proved successful. So Namco offered to bundle Bombi machines with Galaxian to arcade owners uh, in order to clear inventory. You see that a lot with like Miss Pac-Man and Galaga in later years. That's actually very true. Mm -hmm. um, which is weird because Miss Pac-Man is a Namco owned property yeah well so maybe you're wrong is it just pac-man and galaga and pack together yeah usually go to enough. like especially if you go to like the salisbury uh um arcades and like the hampton beach arcades you'll see them up there there's always a two-on-one fair enough um i wanted to add one more note hopefully we'll get to this later but uh they pretty much did the same thing again when they released pac-man at least in japan they released the sequel to Galaxian Galaga at the same time, and everyone was like buying up all the Galaga uh, machines, and Pac-Man was doing like okay. Apparently, yeah, it yeah. did well enough to bring to America, but like, uh, and that's where it like blew up. How did up they shoot and... themselves in the foot twice in a row? They kind of did <laughs> because it blew up in America, so it like still went off. Well, I guess that's true, but like, literally, they still made the same mistake twice, like. At least in a, in a little bit, they made the same mistake twice. But anyway, this brings us to the last pre-Pac-Man era game out of Iwatani and Namco, which is QDQ. Uh, QDQ? You mean basically GB3? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they really weren't getting too creative with like anything they were doing. I don't, <laughs> or at least these first three games. It was literally like the same game three times, just like a little bit updated. And even the first one was a ripoff. 
I guess they were they were brand new to video games. The yeah. fact that they came out with Pac-Man is insane. Yeah, that, like <laughs> insane that this came out of this small ass company that was doing like random shit. <laughs> um, but one of the most interesting things, the the most important takeaway from from QDQ was the sprites. Uh, you can really see Iwatani sort of coming into his own with these designs. The uh, the monsters and ghosts that are in QDQ look very similar to the, the monsters in Pac-Man or ghosts as they're called now. So, like, he was clearly into the whole, like, oh, let's make a cute monster. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> he was getting there. You can really see the design. They almost look like the exact copy of the, the ghost. Yeah, it's a few, like, bits off. It's like, but now, move a few squares, it's the same picture. Now... Why don't we finally talk about the puck of the hour, Pac-Man. Pac-Man? Who's Pac-Man? You can see that Iwatani and Namco took little bits from the the GB series and all the improvements they made all the way through to QDQ, and they just took all that and applied it to an entirely new game. They wanted to come up with something completely original, a concept that had never been seen before, and they came out with Pac-Man. Uh, Pac-Man is a maze-slash-chase game where a player controls Pac-Man and must collect all 244 pellets in each level, four of these pellets being energizers in order to clear the screen. Each small pellet are worth about 10 points, and each energizer is worth about 50 points. This would bring the total to 2,600 points just for clearing each level. All while Pac-Man is being consistently being chased by four monsters or ghosts, as we tend to refer to them now. The Energizers, as they're originally named, uh, mm-hmm. though it's been adopted as power pills, which sounds like a drug. Um, <laughs> it sounds my- <laughs> like Pac-Man's having himself a good-ass night. Yeah, exactly. But my point is that they were actually the, the first power-up in a video game at all. The Ever. first one. Yep, beating Mario. And as most of us probably know, eating the power pill made all the ghosts turn blue, like they said in the intro song. And uh, (laughs) then Pac-Man could eat the ghosts, sending them back to their starting position in the ghost house. So before Mario ever shot a fireball or had any power-ups at all, Pac-Man had these pills and was just eating up the ghosts. And before Sonic was hitting a TV and getting his power-ups, before anything, Pac-Man was the original one. It turns out they're steroids, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so take steroids, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Pac-Man confirmed. Um, you also get points for catching the ghosts, uh, gaining exponentially more points for each one you catch like within the time limit uh, of what we would call frightened mode. And we'll get into that more in a bit, but basically it's the amount of time that they're blue. That's right. You'll get 200 points for the first ghost, 400 points for the second ghost, 600 points for the third, and a whopping... 1,600 points for the last one. If you manage to catch all four before they return to their original colors and the power-up ends, uh, that would bring the total to 3,000 points for catching all of them. Yeah, so if we add that up, that's the 2,600 for the pellets and the energizers, and then 14,600 for the ghosts. And that's not including fruits. No, it isn't. And we're just going to keep all that in our pocket for, the, uh, for when we talk about the highest score ever. Okay, throughout each level, a fruit will pop up under the ghost house. Each level has a different fruit, each worth different points, which go in this order. Cherry, which is worth 100 points. Strawberry, which is worth 300 points. 
Orange, which is worth 500 points. Apple, which is worth 700 points. Melon, which is worth 1,000 points. Then we have a bit of a cameo here in the Galaxian Boss, which is worth 2,000 points. A Bell, which is worth 3,000 points. And a Key, which is worth 5,000 points. And I found this post all of our fucking research. Mm-hmm. But the bell and the key, I don't know if they were first in Pac-Man and then in these other games, but they're also all in other Namco games. Oh, were you thinking about Mappy, the the mouse game? Because I think the key is in that game. I think it's after Pac-Man, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that's just, and there's another one that has the bell in it. Yeah, yeah, they like make their own cameos. Yeah, which is kind of interesting that they just have these like items that go throughout their franchise. I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to Nintendo in a way. Yeah, they yeah, have, right. although like you don't see Link jumping on a. A Koopa Troopa. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they had enemies in that Link's Awakening there. That that was originally a Game Boy game, and it had Mario and Kirby villains in it. So, nah, yeah, really? Yeah, swear to God. Oh, that's so cool. But all right, and um, the Switch just remade it into Link's Awakening. So, I just have to point out that some of those don't sound like fruits. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, Galaxian Boss yeah, sounds like it would just uh, taste horrible. I, I know <laughs> they get the gist of it. <laughs> they, you know it, and we're gonna call them fruits anyways. Yeah, everybody calls them fruits. <laughs> but uh, let's talk some more about the ghosts for a minute. Uh, they were each designed to have their own personalities, if you will. The four ghosts are Inky, the red one; Pinky, obviously the pink one; Blinky is blue, or Evidently, from our research, from our research, cyan. cyan. It's very specific about that. Uh, well, I guess it's blue. All right, that's well, I, when they're in frightened mode. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so he's the cyan ghost, and uh, finally the odd man out. Everybody's favorite, the orange ghost. Ghost. The orange ghost, Clyde. <laughs> and to make things more confusing, they have real names in addition to their nicknames. Andrew just said. Blinky is really shadow, Pinky is really speedy, Inky is really bashful, and Clyde is really pokey. Which, by the way, fits better than Clyde into the nicknames, but whatever. More names used in the original Japanese version actually start to describe their personalities a bit. I'm not going to attempt to try and pronounce them, but they translate to Chaser for Blinky, Ambush for Pinky, Fickle for Inky, and Feigning or Ignorance for or lazy or stupid for Clyde. Their personalities were real too and coded into the games. Tell us about the AI, Andrew. I know you've been dying to. It's been in my head for so long. <laughs> get in I'm there, I'm so bud. glad to get it on, the, <laughs> on it recording. Out. Okay, so uh, Inky, Shadow, Chaser, whatever you want to call him, the red one, uh, was programmed the most simply. He chases after Pac-Man, which sounds kind of dumb, but that's exactly what it is. And then meanwhile, Pinky is always trying to flank Pac-Man. He's trying to get in front of him. Uh, Inky, I feel like, isn't given enough credit when he's called Fickle. I think he's really a team player. Uh, he, It seems like he was programmed to sort of, like, scare Pac-Man into the direction of Inky or Pinky. Uh, so just, like, to keep him away from... You know what I'm saying? Oh, Does that no, make I sense? Or yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um. Clyde, meanwhile, is the odd man out. He pretty much just minds his own business unless Pac-Man gets too close to him and then he starts on the attack the exact way as Blinky. It's just really kind of interesting that, like, it's part of his program to... It's part of his program to leave him alone for a period of time for, like, most of the game. It's just kind of funny. But the programmers achieved this technique by having each of the ghosts individually decide its course within each frame of the game. It's by far the most complex dynamic of the game 
uh, let's jump into the programmer's perspective of making the ghosts. What we have so far is Pac-Man himself, just a sprite you can control with the joystick. <clears throat> he has an animation, opening and closing his mouth. It cycles through the spaces in between the dots to make it look like he's eating them. It's all relatively simple. Then you have the uh, the the maze, which is just a grid pattern. Still, everything's all just laid out on a grid. And then you have these like these are walls that you can't go into. It's all pretty simple until you get to the ghosts. Uh, so one more important note about the uh, the walls and the movement. Uh, neither Pac-Man or Ghost can turn into the walls. Pac-Man, however, can turn around at any point. Unlike the ghost who can only turn 180 degrees at very specific points. All right, so follow me a little bit deeper down this dark hole of the mechanics of how the ghosts work. We've established they only turn 180 degrees at certain points, but when? Wonderful question, listener. I'd love to tell you. <laughs> I think you've been doing this research a little too long, buddy. <laughs> the people want to know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the ghosts only turn around when they change state. You can use this as a marker for when they change. It's very useful for like improving parts of the the game. And we'll get into how you can do non-improv <laughs> in a second. Um, but the ghosts have four different states: uh, chase, scatter, frightened, and eaten. In their chase state, they all chase Pac-Man. Go figure. Um, in the scatter state, they all go to their respective corners. Uh, Inky goes to the top right. Top left is Pinky. Bottom right is Blinky, and bottom left we'll call Clyde's corner because Clyde will stick there most of the game as well. Um, but every round starts off in scatter mode, and all the ghosts go to their respective corners in that order. You can follow Inky up the top left, and he'll leave you alone entirely and just go right over onto the top right. I do it sometimes because it's just super fun. <laughs> like, you follow him. <laughs> you can follow him all the way to his corner, and he does nothing. Just to taunt him. Literally. <laughs> um that's why we're going through all this very interesting information because players were able to notice these things and take advantage to get more high scores, which is really the most important thing. Go on. Frightened mode is more interesting than you might think. The ghosts turn blue and basically no longer have a target tile. They start by doing 180 degrees to signal the change of state. And then they have a random number generator. Choose a direction at any intersection. The last state, Eaton, is almost too simple to mention. They turn into a pair of eyeballs. They cannot interact with Pac-Man, and the target tile becomes a ghost house. So they just head right there, and then they go back to either chase or scatter state, depending on the, the timing in the game. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Let's get back to their personalities. Each ghost has their own target tile that they calculate, and then they decide which direction gets them linearly closest to that position. The linear part is very important because it's not always the quickest way to their target. I won't bore you too much, but if you've ever taken a discrete algebra class, you know that a uh, shortest path formula is way, way more steps and would be massively more lines of code than literally using the Pythagorean theorem with the grid that you already have established and just doing that over and over and over again to achieve pretty much the same effect. But it's important to note because uh, we can take advantage of it discrete algebra that's where the lights are off in the classroom the yes. entire time everyone tries to hide from each other <laughs> the teacher writes it all in invisible ink it's very dis it's, it's very discreet it's, it's a difficult class though so this means that there are some basically situations, means computer math this this means that there are some situations where the ghost would have an easy opportunity to kill pac-man but they go the wrong way instead to get closer to their uh to the target tile because remember, the only one whose target tile is Pac-Man is 
Blinky himself. Mm-hmm. Inky. Inky's the red one? In... Shadow Chaser, the red one. <laughs> oh, the red one is Blinky. Scrolling back up to see if you're wrong. He's inky. He's inky. What did I the say? The red blinky? one's inky. I always think he's blinky too. <laughs> They're so annoying because you imagine that inky is the blue one. Yeah. Especially because like cyan is literally a color of printer ink. <laughs> <laughs> um. But all right, let's let's get back to where where are we again? Inky is the only one whose target tile is Pac-Man, and even then he can be tricked because of the linear thing. But Pinky is far by far the easiest one to trick. Her target tile is two spaces in front of Pac-Man, which is how they get her to constantly flank Pac-Man, but we can point out quite a few flaws caused by her programming. When she's exactly one space in front of Pac-Man, moving towards him and onto his tile, eating him actually lengthens the distance from her target tile, because it would now be one behind her, so now she's moving forward, that makes it further away. Um, So given the opportunity, like at any intersection, she will always turn away from Pac-Man, when she's one space in front of them instead of killing him. Um, it's pretty easy to pull off if she's chasing you. Just turn around right at the exact right moment and she'll just like swing the other way, swing the other direction. It's crazy. Um, it, it, it looks like you're scaring her away by just like shaking back towards her at the right moment. Um, another flaw with Pinky's programming can send her the wrong direction and give you the opportunity to flee. If you're facing up, Due to an overflow error in the coding, Pinky's target tile becomes two up and two to the left of Pac-Man, sending her far away from Pac-Man, which to note is not the worst mistake ever made with an overflow error Mm -hmm. because there was a NASA satellite that literally fell out of the sky because of the same type of error. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the last thing about the ghosts is that there are two areas on the board where the ghosts are completely incapable of turning up I still don't 100% understand why, but there's these two spots that can't turn up at those areas. Um, And that's to the left and right of the T-shaped walls above and below the ghost house. So knowing all of this and combining it into, uh, it combines into a very famous spot where you can permanently hide from all of the ghosts. You can sit there as long as you feel like keeping the game running. The ghosts will never eat you. So how do you do it? You have to get all four gates. Geists. <laughs> you have all to get, four geese. Yeah, exactly. All four gooses. Uh, they're Canada gooses, not geese. Um, <laughs> you have to get all four ghosts chasing you and have them follow you up the T-shaped wall from the left side. Then you go up to the left side of the T, face yourself up against the wall, and wait. If you did it right, you'll see all the ghosts go into their infinite loops. Even if you didn't get it perfect, it can help you shake them off if you need to because uh, they'll get one space away from you and they'll literally just turn the wrong direction. Now you've actually pulled this off a couple times during research, right, Andrew? Yeah, sort of. I I got a few good seconds of it and uh, watching them do loops was was pretty cool. But then they changed state and I was like, wait, what? And they all turned 180 (laughs) degrees and I sat there for another couple seconds and NQ was just like... (laughs) Yeah, next thing you know, I was dead. Um, but it threw the whole thing off. Um, the, my mistake was the the cha- was involving the change of state. It, it cycles from scatter to chase, and when it does that, they turn around, like we just mentioned. Um, throughout, and it does this throughout the level, uh, but it always ends with a permanent chase mode. The level always ends with a permanent chase mode. 
starting when there are a certain number of pellets left. That number decreases as you go through the levels to the point where after 15 or so levels, if you have half the board gone, they are in chase mode nonstop. I think that's actually all my ghost sounds. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that was a lot. It was. <laughs> Remind our listeners why we care, Andrew. Well, it's the same reason as always, Nick. High scores. <laughs> knowing the ghosts is knowing the game. Like I said in the beginning of my spiel, the rest is simple. Gamers who understood the ghosts were able to get the highest of the high scores. They saw patterns in the ghosts. They noticed the 180 switches, the change of states. They noticed Clyde sticking to his corner all the time, only straying when Pac-Man got too close. In addition to the patterns in the ghosts, they noticed patterns in their own gameplay. They played the same way over and over again, and they kept living, and they were like, oh, that makes sense. Let's, let's keep doing that. Let's work on that. Let's see if we can repeat that a million times. Um, and then it was just like a light bulb moment for everyone who, who got into the competition level of playing Pac-Man that the ghost movements depend entirely on the movements of Pac-Man. This is the kind of thing that led to people like Billy Mitchell completing the perfect game. Yes, Billy Mitchell. It's true, he had some of his awards and accolades removed, but some have also been reinstated. Honestly, his story is almost as long as Pac-Man, so we're not going to get into it, but he was the first person to quote-unquote beat Pac-Man. More accurately, he was the first person to achieve the perfect game. If I can jump in to point something out, this wasn't until 1999 that he was able to pull this off. 19 years after Pac-Man had been on the market. The code for Pac-Man was well known at this point. Our boys at MIT cracked the code in 1981 at least to make Pac- Miss Pac-Man a reality by 1982. Uh, but that's for another episode. <laughs> Check back in for that. <laughs> yes, and uh, the point I think you're trying to make is that Mitchell has access to every resource we do now to beat Pac-Man, even though it may be a bit easier to find nowadays. That's right, exactly. And nowadays you can literally find videos on YouTube of the patterns that you need to Which know. Which is what to... we did. <laughs> exactly, they're great videos. Yeah. Um, and the patterns are so much fun. <laughs> we'll post those on the Facebook page too. Absolutely. Um, but you, you can literally find them on YouTube, like... He was in that crew of people who were developing these patterns, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so he definitely had access to this knowledge. It all starts at level one. The first level has a pattern all its own based on behaviors of the ghost. To briefly describe it, it starts with clearing Clyde's corner but leaving the power pill. As you said earlier, Andrew, Clyde is last to the game and sticks to that corner a lot once things get going. Then you get the bottom tunnel, often an easy area to get trapped in. Next bottom right corner, up around crossing in front of the ghost house to get the fruit, leaving all the power pills at the point all four ghosts will be chasing you back to Clyde's corner. You grab the power pill, gobble all four of them up. There's not much left after that. Pattern-wise, it's pretty much improv for the rest of the maze. And that's 100% because of the frightened state programming that random number generator throws off the the programming or throws off the patterning so much it's the only thing in the entire game that that changes where the ghosts go not based on packing knocking off all kinds of timing exactly but that leaves you at a great position clyde's corner is fully clear along with the bottom tunnel you got a bunch of other dots running that pattern and you have other three energizers left if you've gotten far enough to get that pattern down, you should be fine with that. That's the first level two, three, four, and five have a new pattern. And that's because the ghosts leave the house more quickly starting on level two. 
and then even more quickly again after five. You can point the level out by the apple. The apple is the fruit for level five. That's right, which actually means the first pattern will run you right into Blinky every time. But good news, everybody! The new pattern is nearly identical. When you're heading through the bottom tunnel instead of heading up at the end of it, now into Blinky, turn around and double back. Then go up and finish the same pattern as the first. If you've made it this far, hold tight for the next one because pattern three is a doozy. It is much more challenging. The two moves you will need to master are referred to as the extra distance turn and then the kiss. The pattern uh, starts relatively the same, except you can't get the whole bottom row. You have to turn up before getting stuck down there with Inky. Then some more basic pattern following, then the extra distance turn. You're coming down the right side, and the pellets will lead any normal person to the left under the ghost house. You have to resist every time, and remember to go just beyond that point. Turn around at the wall, then make your turn and fall back into the pattern. This is all for timing. If you've done the rest of it right, they if you've done the rest of it right, they should be going above the ghost house where he can't turn up to get into his corner. This this gives you the opportunity to sneak some pellets from there and then go grab the second fruit that now starts to appear, and that's when you go in for the kiss. Ooh, kissy, kissy. Tell me more about girls, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you about the kiss if you want. After you grab the second fruit, you go scoop two leftover pellets and come literally so close to Pinky that the two sprites are touching. Mm, You can touch my sprites if you want, baby. Damn, June, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) And then turn back before she eats you. This sends her in the wrong direction... All these patterns are about throwing off the ghost and getting you to the point in the level where the rest is easy enough for you to get through every time. That's right. And the pattern takes you clear through to level 19, a.k.a. the ninth key level. That is if you could pull it off flawlessly 15 times in a row. (laughs) At this point, the whole bottom of the screen where it tracks your fruits should now be filled with keys. That's how you'll tell it apart. Because I didn't know this. In the original game, they don't tell you what level you're on. No. Yeah, so you, you the only way to track it is the fruits, oh, unless you're it. like a genius and yeah, can yeah. remember exactly how many levels you've done. So that's the way to like count it out. The mm-hmm. ninth key level. Once you have all the keys on the bottom, you switch to this uh, this pattern. The interesting thing about this level and the last change in the gameplay for the entire rest of this game, uh, the energizers no longer do anything. They're still worth 50 points, but the ghosts do not get frightened, and you cannot eat them. To add on to to add on to it, by level 16, permanent chase mode kicks in when you have only half the board clear. So at this point, they are constantly chasing you. There is no scatter mode. Mm-hmm. There is no frighten mode. There is no eaten mode. And there's just you and the four ghosts. Running for your life. Which is bad news for anyone who's not running the patterns, but is wonderful news if you've made it this far for someone who is running the patterns because that means that at this point everything that has any amount of randomness has been eliminated from the game Mm -hmm. um so the final pattern go ahead 
Okay, so the final pattern clears the entire board each time. There's no tricks like in pattern three with the kiss in the extra distance turn. It's just a clear route that if you do not stray from, for a single frame, you will get both keys at every pellet and every energizer every time. And you have to do this more than 230 times in a row flawlessly to keep you on the path to 256. Then you're at level... 256 woohoo perfect game we got it right and not quite because we didn't even mention that as you're running the patterns on the first 18 levels you need to catch all four ghosts each time you get each of the four energizers sending them into frighten mode so you have to get every flashing dot and then get the ghost off of every one of those pellets damn so that's 18 times four that's 72 times they have to get all four ghosts or the perfect game is failed already. Like you might as well just restart. <laughs> well, you can still get to level 256, but it won't be a perfect game. You also can't lose a life. That's what makes the first 18 levels almost as challenging as crossing the desert, which is what they call getting from level 19 to 255. Plus those initial 18 levels have three different patterns. Uh, and they don't get you the whole board. <laughs> yeah, the, there are plenty of opportunities to slip there before you even really get going. Level 16 in particular, when permanent chase starts at 120 dots cleared, you have literally a single second of frightened mode before they revert back. Your timing and techniques outside of this uh, of the pattern have to be impeccable. Then you get to level 19, and you cruise through the rest of it, right? <laughs> Unless you slip up on level 134 and now you're in the middle of the desert. The game is running at max speed and your pattern is gone. You already fucked it up. It's okay though. You're good at this so you just take a deep breath and fuck Inky got me. Okay, start over at level 1. Then you start over but you're doing pattern 2. Fuck, well that was quick. Start over. Alright, you're doing better now. Through the first few, you're in pattern three, you do the kiss, but you turn around just too late and you run into Pinky. Another attempt, it's level 16. You missed one of the ghosts by that much and you just run right into his ass. The perfect game, even with all the help you can find, is still nearly impossible, which is part of what makes this such a great game. It has the ability to span from attracting new players to creating competition into veteran gamers. On the subject of attracting new players, let's jump back a little bit to May 22, 1980. Pac-Man was first released in Japan under the name Puckman. Yes, Puckman. There's pictures to prove it. Before doing this research, I always thought it was a joke, too. Pardon the heater, by the way, guys. <laughs> no, yeah, 100%. They changed it to Pac-Man because they were worried people would change the P to an F on Puckman cabinets. Because, you know, it'd be fucking hilarious. Bunch of Fuckman cabinets all over the arcade, which is kind of smart. Like, looking ahead of that and being like, ah, I don't think so. This is really bad. Should we redo those last two lines? All right, let me go pee. No. My ass hurts in that seat, though. While we're confirming some myths, 
Here's a quote from Iwatani about the pizza story. Nick, why don't you go ahead? Uh, the story I like to tell about the origin of Pac-Man is that one lunchtime I was quite hungry and ordered a whole pizza. I helped myself to a wedge, and what was left was the idea for the Pac-Man shape. This was from Iwatani himself. Yes, but then when the interviewer asked, is the story about the pizza really true? Iwatani said... Well, it's half true. In Japanese, the character for mouth is a square shape. It's not circular like the pizza, but I decided to round it out. So sort of is the answer, I guess. I think it was a conscious decision. Like He knew it looked like a pizza, but I feel like it was just a doodle he came up with. <laughs> I imagine him drawing the Japanese character for mouth over and over again because obviously he had the idea from the very beginning of an eating game. So uh, I, especially with the way his creative flow seems to go, it's a, it, it seems very like hippy dippy almost. So it's, yeah. I can I can yeah. imagine him literally just sitting there doodling over and over trying to think of an idea, and I can see him taking that that Pac Man. Um, I mean that Tabu Taberu character, the Japanese character, and making it into that Pac-Man shape, and then being like, "Oh, that looks like a pizza. Like, let's round it out a little bit." <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I can see it being a, a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And uh, did we mention uh, that Pac-Man's name comes from uh, an onomatopoeic Japanese slang, "paku paku," which is supposed to be like an eating sound? It's basically the Japanese equivalent of like "omnom." You just imagine like a parallel universe where uh, it's Omnom Man or, yeah. or Ms. Omnom Nom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't forget Omnom Man Jr. <laughs> uh, before we move on from this little tangent, I just need to read you the rest of the that quote, actually, where uh, Iwatani goes on about the simplicity of the design. There's a temptation to make Pac-Man shape less simple. While I was designing this game, someone suggested we add eyes. But we eventually discarded that idea because once we added eyes, we would want to add glasses and maybe a mustache. There would just be no end to it. So what you're saying is in an alternate universe, there's an Omnom Man machine that plays and looks just like Pac-Man, but he has a mustache and glasses. This is why we need interdimensional travel. I mean, a time machine is cool, I guess, but can it get me Omnom Man? No, Nick. No, I can't. <laughs> but anyway, uh, where were we? Right, Japan, 1980. Okay, I'm back. Uh, Konnichiwa. It was only a mild success in Japan, partly, again, because of Namco's own self-competition. They released Pac-Man around the same time as Galaga, the popular sequel to Galaxian, mm-hmm. uh, just like they did with GB or Bombi, one of the Bs, and literally Galaxian. <laughs> uh, Pac-Man and Namco weren't all to blame, though. The market was just so dominated by males uh that even though pac-man did particularly well with women and tested better than any of their other games with women it still couldn't compare to the success of galaxian yeah lasers war explosions (laughs) exactly (laughs) at least in japan that is when it hit the u.s it was like wildfire there was literally even a hit song out within the year pac-man fever which you heard way up at the top of the show and it's gonna play a sound soon hopefully thanks for sticking with us by the way if there's anyone still listening 
Uh, I really hope there is. This was a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) It it really was. We had no idea going into this how fucking long it would be. But like I was saying, it was an instant success. And they just like this is going to (laughs) be. Yeah. All right. Uh, They made shit ton of money uh, off of it. By 1982, when they had sold 400,000 arcade cabinets in the U.S., 10 times more than the amount of Galaxian cabinets they had sold in Japan. They hit the jackpot. They had sequels, ripoffs, fucking cartoons, alarm clocks, thermoses, everything you could think of that you could put a mascot and boom, there was Pac-Man, the first video game mascot. Uh, Isn't there any particular fun facts we haven't gotten to, Nick? Um, Doom is inspired by the Pac-Man maze. Oh yeah, that's actually really interesting. Um, the the 3D first-person shooter Doom, the the fake 3D first-person shooter. Yep. The uh the three-dimension system, the ray casting system, which was so revolutionary for the time, was actually inspired by Pac-Man, according to the creator of the game. Uh, he said the the maze was the the part that set him off because he realized if there was walls to the left and right of you it it eliminated a lot of peripheral vision and it made it a lot easier for the the machine to do the calculations to to be able to put a 3d world in front of you Mm -hmm. uh it was the first game with cutscenes, uh which is like after a couple of screens the the, it'll play a little like cartoon video for you uh of like pac-man chasing a ghost the the ghost chasing pac-man kind of thing uh, becoming blue and then running away and Pac-Man comes back giant a lot of fun cute little music do you remember the uh that Pac-Man VR machine we saw next oh dude do I remember it <laughs> I, I want to find it it's so crazy this thing came out in like 92 right oh yeah and, and it used a, a, a VR system that existed in the 80s it's like literally if anyone's seen Community that, that file system that the Dean uses at one point <laughs> it's good it's, reference it's literally that machine yep. and you're in there playing Pac-Man it's, it's the craziest it's fucking insane yep. you gotta look it up we'll put a picture we'll do a video picture of what it uh, looks like up on the Facebook page also absolutely um, do we have anything else? I uh, think that might be it I think we're good man I think that's it alright well, we don't have too much time here I just want to bring up one more perspective let's look at it from a a business standpoint oh goody yeah it's gonna be really fun (laughs) um pac-man's time in the spotlight literally is the peak of arcades in america whether they timed it right or like literally caused it is up for debate but arcades were on the rise and yet the switch to home consoles had been the writing on the wall so to say ever since atari brought pong into america's living room in 1975 Mm mm-hmm um let's think about namco's roots though manufacturing low-cost amusements pop guns mechanical horsey rides (laughs) pinball machines they needed to be cost effective to offer returns this was part of their business model simple is cheap keep it simple stupid it had to be cheap enough that the customer wouldn't have to spend much uh so that they could continue to get more customers it just had to be good it had to be cheap and good uh, but to, prov- to provide them with that sense of satisfaction in their investment, uh, however minor that it may be. And remember, Namco didn't even get into gaming until 77 when they bought the uh, Japanese division of Atari. Meanwhile, Atari in the U.S. was releasing the 2600 at, in that same year, which would later 
uh, have its own horrible version of Pac-Man on yeah, it. Uh, terrible, terrible version. Yeah, oh, it would just god awful. I've played it. It's my dad loves it. And really? Oh, of course. He likes that. Yeah, it's the Atari. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's god awful. Um, but that just further proves my point that I I haven't even made yet, <laughs> which uh is that Pac-Man was fit for its time perfectly. They knew if they had tried to make it a computer game, it would have sucked. It would have been too expensive. It also lacks the social aspect of a game like Pac-Man, the head-to-head, the mm-hmm. the like competition of f- like fighting for the machine. Oh, yeah. I have the high score. I get to keep going, like something like that. You know what I mean? It would maybe be you and one other person. Like yeah. That. So so they made a a smart choice and made something within their means, an arcade game. Uh, using a whole cabinet with a dedicated logic board, which is distinctly not a computer like a home console. Uh, They could have a machine that just ran the game and it would be... uh, They could have a machine that would just run the game, it would run reliably every time, and it would be relatively cheap to make. At this point, parts-wise, they just needed to make it well and keep it simple stupid. They, They were able to do those things and it became one of the greatest successes of all time. Um, I mean, seriously, when you think about it, it's not the most complicated game of its time, even. Not at all. Yeah, it's very simple. That that's the but beauty that's, of it. Yeah, and that's why people are so easily drawn to it because you don't need to understand a, a ton to just jump in and play. Exactly. Now, uh, what next? Are we talking about Miss Pac-Man? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but let's uh, let's put a little pause on Pac-Man. <laughs> I'm a little Pac-Man out. I don't know about you. Oh yeah, in, in fact, uh, I'm re- I'm really not starting to feel too good. Uh, wait, really? Yeah, I uh, I think I got the Pac-Man fever. Do do do. Pac-Man fever. Do do now. Pac-Man fever. Thank you guys, and have a wonderful night. Good.